Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, heat waves, damp squibs and the climate crisis. As Mediterranean countries grapple with an unprecedented heat wave, the UK is dealing with April showers in July. It seems that we're now starting to experience the extreme and unpredictable weather climate scientists have long predicted. Is it too late to act? And what can we as individuals do? I'm going to be discussing this with Erica Coppola. Erica is a climate scientist working at the Abdus Salam International Centre in Trieste in Italy. She's been the lead author on reports for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And we're going to be chatting as well to Gareth Redmond King. He's the international lead at the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, a non-profit that supports informed debate on energy and climate issues. Before we do that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. If you've not read it yet, well, let me urge you to do so. It's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. Find out how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Erica and Gareth. Erica, just paint a picture for us first of just how extreme the situation is in Southern Europe in particular. At the moment, in this day, we are just witnessing the situation in which uh, the high pressure system is just standing over the southeast Mediterranean. And this usually give us a lot of humid and warm air coming from the tropics. And this is quite unusual because usually the average situation in summer for the Mediterranean is that the high pressure system stands over the Atlantic. When this happens, we reach very high temperature. And in this day in Sicily, reached the threshold of 45 degrees never seen before. And this is the same over the Tyrrhenian coast. Like all the west part of the Mediterranean is under the alert. And these kind of events we know well as a climate scientist that are linearly connected with the global warming. And we see that these things are intensifying as a frequency and also as intensity. So exactly what the climate model projects. The Mediterranean basin is one of the regions where there have been more study about the attributing those events to climate change. And we see a clear agreement between observation model projection and attributions. We are going to see there is an increased trend of these events. We are going to see even more increase depending on the level of global warming. And there have been many studies in the past attributing those events to the human activity. So it's really clear the picture for us. And Gareth, in the UK, we've had a really strange situation, haven't we, in that we had unprecedented heat in June. We've now got a very damp July and the unpredictability that climate scientists have talked about for many years now appears to be embedded in weather patterns in the UK. Yes, I think that's so. But of course, we've seen these temperatures last year. We saw a new high, a new extreme in the UK when we went above 40 degrees almost exactly a year ago this week, actually in the UK's hottest year. And we know from the sort of attribution study that Erica was just talking about that that 40 degree heat was 10 times more likely in the UK as a result of climate change. And yeah, so now we've got rainy 
I just turned the volume up now because the noise of the rain on the roof was kind of drowning you out, but coming after the hottest June that we've seen. And this is a year that globally we kind of expect to be probably the hottest on record. And Erica, I'm just intrigued how we can extricate the impact of humankind on climate from other causes. Is there a way you can describe that to me in non-technical language? How do we know that man-made climate change may be the cause in some of these instances? Yeah, okay. So we can look at the specific events. We can look at the record we have on ground for precipitation or the extreme heat. And then we can look at the weather pattern and what is the large scale pattern of our weather. And we can look for similar condition in the past. And if we can go very, very back in the past, like 1900 or 1950, and then we can basically assume that that past was the one without the human intervention, right? And then we look at the most recent year, those ones where we know that we have been emitting a lot. And then we can compare the two. And then if we see that there is a clearly change in the distribution of any of these events, if we see, for example, that events like these in that specific region are becoming more in frequency and distribution, so that the way in which these events happen, it's very different from the one that has been in the past, then we can assume that the only responsible for that is the warming. This is the way in which we do that. And you have no doubt that regardless of perhaps individual moments in time, that overall we are living now in a period in which the climate is being directly impacted by human activity. We look at the trend and we see that there is an increase of these extreme events. So then this, together with the fact that many of those extreme events have been attributed already, then together with the model projection that goes in the same direction, if we put together all these three ingredients, we can be almost sure that this is the reason why we are looking at those extreme events happening today. And the intergovernmental panel to which you have contributed reports has said that the impact of these changes will be huge for humankind across the world. Yes, of course. If if there is no action, if there are no mitigation policy, if there is no adaptation already planned now, this can be really disastrous, especially for those regions in which the people and the government are not ready to face such a change. And of course, we can imagine that the highest temperature will be hit in this place, like in the Equatorian region, where we have the most poor country of the world. So imagine how much can they adapt without help from other country. So this is really something that has to be solved in a very short time. And we always have these dire warnings, and certainly the UK government, Erica, has made various promises relating to CO2 emissions. We don't meet our targets for reducing CO2 in common with many other world governments as well. What do we need to do and what will the consequences of failing to do it be? Well, there's been just recently a very nice paper published in Science that I have just now in front of me 
in which they do the estimate of what is predicted emission of CO2 in case we just stay with the current policy. And this is the case, the most pessimistic case. So if we stay with this current policy, we are going to emit still by the 2030 58 gigaton of carbon dioxide per year. And this will translate in a warming with a median of 2.6 degrees without any other assumption. So definitely we are not on track. We look at the current policy. But then if we consider the policy but plus the net zero target implementation that has been done in most of the nation around the world, then we jump to a different case in which we can still, we are above the threshold of the 1.5, but we can see that we are emitting a bit less and then stay at least below the 2.5. So this information and this study is really crucial to show where we are heading if we don't do anything. I mean, we are able to estimate where we are and where we are heading without implementation of the policy and without implementation of the pledge of all the government that have been done so far. Gareth, in the UK, you know that if we have a spell of good weather, not one we're experiencing at the moment, there were those people who tend to just brush it off and say, bring it on, we're going to have a heat wave. It can be very hard, can't it, to control or to get the narrative heard of reducing CO2. Yeah, historically, we're a, a rainy, fairly cold country. We all love a bit of sunshine. We all like a nice summer. But, you know, these things that we're talking about, this is not nice summer. This is not pleasant holidays. We're used to seeing images of people having fun on the beach and eating ice creams as soon as it's announced that there's a heat wave. I think what's interesting is increasingly we're seeing quite different images, particularly over the last few days from various parts of Europe worst affected and last summer as well. We're seeing more of those images of people struggling to cope, struggling to find shade uncomfortable because it's way too hot, needing to get water, images of homeless people on the streets in Texas being handed water. I think that's a really important part of all of this, is to make clear that it's dangerous. The extreme heat last year is estimated to have killed 61,000 people across Europe. Nearly 3,500 of those were in the UK. So it's increasingly important that we help people to understand what the risks are of these temperatures and don't just celebrate a bit of sun. Indeed. And uh, I know a group of MPs recently said that the UK had lost its clear global leadership position on climate action. It was something which, under Boris Johnson, at least in terms of rhetoric, the UK seemed to be engaged in. We had Alex Sharma, who led the COP26, I think it was, in Scotland, who again seemed to be very well regarded and appear to take his responsibilities seriously. But although there is a clear political dimension to this, it is yeah. something which our political leaders now appear to be less concerned with, which given the scale of the threat that you're both describing is incredible, really. Yeah, it's the government's own advisors, the Climate Change Committee, said just a few weeks ago that the UK had lost that leadership position. And it was genuinely a leadership position. I mean, the UK was the first major economy to commit to a net zero target not very long ago, in 2019, when Theresa May was Prime Minister. We have 
cut emissions in the UK probably further than almost any other major economy as well. But it's kind of no good just boasting about what we've done in the past. I could have cleaned my house from top to bottom every day for the last 10 years, but there's no good my boasting about it if I haven't done it for a year. You know, my house is going to be in a bit of a state. And the UK was important. That leadership position was important in climate talks, which, as you said, most recently in relation to, you know, the very respected role that Alok Sharma carried out chairing COP26 in Glasgow. But the UK has always been part of what gets called the High Ambition Coalition in those UN climate talks, and was, for example, part of helping to drive the very complex and landmark agreement over the finish line in Paris in 2015. So there is a lot lost from that loss of leadership position. And it's not as if we have by cutting emissions more than anybody else have solved the problem for the UK. This is a global problem. Climate change doesn't know any borders. And as the temperatures rise to the sort of levels that Erica was talking about, even if we end up with a bit of low pressure locked over the UK and we're comfortable and and rainy, our food comes from all over the world. Half our food is imported from overseas. Half of that comes from climate vulnerable countries. And so the harder it becomes in those countries to grow food, to sustain lives and livelihoods in those countries, the more our food supplies, for example, amongst many other things that we import from around the world, the more our supplies are affected and prices go up. That's part of what's behind some of the food price rises that we've seen in recent years. Partly it's about the dramatic rise in fossil fuel prices as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the impact that has on fertilizer prices, for example. But it's also actually some of the recent price rises have been affected by some of those heat extremes and droughts in the Mediterranean region. Things like olive oil actually are quite a big driver of food inflation in the UK. And we've seen yields of olive oil in Spain and Italy fall in recent droughts and extreme heats. I think one important dimension that we have to take into account when we estimate risk is the risk that we heritate from the other country, as exactly it was pointed out before. When they estimate the risk of a specific sector, they also have the component of the risk due to remote action, like, for example, the failure of the agriculture in another country that can impact your own country. And I think this is very important in science communication when we point to this and then People will understand that nice sunny weather in the UK is not the only thing they have to hope to, but they have to hope something else as well. Indeed. And uh, here in the UK at the moment, there's a lot of concern about migration, people arriving on small boats across the channel, but climate change will induce migration. So we may, even if we survive the worst effects of climate change and that's by no means guaranteed but even if we do it will as gareth says impact our food supplies it will impact the the push factors of migration from countries in the global south that are affected yeah it will and indeed this is one term that is not yet included in our dynamical physical model the human dimension is not there yet But this is important, of course, and also the feedback, because if we move all the human population in a northern country, of course, also our climate is going to be affected by this movement. And it's something, a next step that we need to do to be more realistic on this uh, topic. 
And Erica, I just wonder, given what you've said about the urgency of this, what you make of plans like the UK has to move towards zero emission cars and vans by 2035. There are similar plans in other developed European countries. But from what you're saying, it will be too little too late. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have to act all together now. That means all together means that UK is also to think how to help the other country to act because otherwise it will not be enough. UK, as much as the Europe, as the US and all the other countries that are in the position of helping the global south, we need to do this because global warming is a worldwide problem. And if we do not act together and in a very fast and sharp way, we are out of target. We are already out of target. We see our projection is well above the 2.5. And so we need to act really together globally and in a synchronous way, not thinking about our own car, our own house. That is, of course, important, but the policy has to be global for each of the sector we think about. Exactly. And not least because, just to, you know, to remind ourselves, the impacts are global. Going back to your point about migration and people moving, actually, for all the rhetoric around migration in the UK, we take very, very few people who are seeking refuge in the world. The vast majority of people who are seeking refuge, they move within already very poor countries that are affected by climate impact and other problems like conflict, or they move within regions. So from one relatively poor country affected by these things to another. So some of the poorest countries in the world are coping with the global refugee population at the moment. And this just adds to sort of instability. It emphasizes why Erica's point is so important about the role of wealthy countries like the UK, we're the sixth biggest economy by GDP, to support those poorer countries in all of this, in adapting, in recovering from climate disaster, in taking climate action to get, or in some cases, leapfrog fossil fuels towards clean technology, because this is a global endeavour and you know there is no wall you can build high enough that will prevent the impacts of climate change from affecting you. Erica, when you talk about it needs a a global initiative, some people will feel uncomfortable about that because it has echoes of some kind of global government. What are the mechanics of trying to get global initiative on that? You know, it comes with all sorts of baggage that people may be very uncomfortable with and with a significant degree of practical problems as well. Yeah, I know. Politically, I'm not an expert of political <laughs> or international. <laughs> what I see is that definitely if we want to implement any green policy, if we want to go towards the green energy production, we need to invest in those countries. I mean, it can be a benefit for our country because we invest there. I mean, we spin up our economy, but also we help them to reach what they could not reach without any help. I mean, imagine you want to cover the Sahara Desert with the windmill or with solar panel. Who is going to do this? Which of the country from the African continent is able to do this? Nobody, assuming that this is a good initiative. So of course we have to, try to push toward this direction. Our NGO, they have to invest 
toward this direction and make our economy, I think, going faster, but also helping their economy to develop in this direction. I think one of the things that helps in all of this is the fact that markets are moving in this direction, that that it is economically a very good thing to do this. Increasingly, there is huge economic value, jobs and growth associated with investment in these clean technologies because the price is falling and take-up is increasing because lots of countries are taking action and because some of the biggest economies on the planet are taking very rapid action, like China. China is investing in renewables at a rate that knocks everyone else into a cocked hat. And what that all means is the IPCC is clear that it costs less to do this, to keep to act, to keep warming to 1.5 degrees, than it costs to deal with the impact. And here in the UK, the net zero industries are worth some £70 billion a year in value to the economy. They employ 840,000 people, which is something like four to five times more than are employed in the oil and gas industry, for example. So, you know, markets are kind of helping governments and people in that progress towards doing the right thing globally. Mm. What can I do, Erica? I mean, I hear this debate, I'm brokering the debate, and I think it's hugely important and we can all cast a vote at the ballot box we can all try and get involved in civic society in some way but what can i do at a practical level to have some kind of impact on climate change i think let's say average citizen that is not involved neither in economy or in science what i would do is try to raise the awareness of the people try to speak more and try to give practical example easy example try to add the science communication that sometimes it's not easy for neither for us nor for people that are expert in that we for example that are we are a research institute what we are contributing is to involve the global south in the scientific development and research because those are the people that have to act tomorrow in the government they have to take the decision and they have to invest but the most important thing is to not do things without involving the global south neither research nor in the economy neither in the investment i mean all this has to be done together with them in a way that they will be aware of what is happening and then the information is clear for everybody. I think that point about average citizens taking action as well, it's worth remembering that in the global sense, and when we think about our consumption and our footprint as people living in wealthy countries in Europe, we're not average. We are way, way above average. And some of the, the things that might feel like relatively small impacts in our individual lives are incredibly significant in relative terms to emissions in other parts of the world. So we do need to remember we live in very high emitting countries. So then our voices and our choices are incredibly important. You talked about casting the vote, but also despite the fact that polling consistently shows that the public in the UK actually consistently shows it in many countries around the world, including the US, although you wouldn't necessarily think it from their politics. But although polling shows that people in the UK want politicians to take climate action, actually, politicians don't hear that very often from their constituents. So there is something very important about maintaining the awareness of the people who represent us, as well as talking to, you know, to friends and family for whom this is not necessarily day to day life yet. And then the kind of individual choices we make about how we travel, how we we heat our homes, the power we buy, that sort of thing, the food we eat. 
Gareth, thank you for your time. Gareth Redmond-King, thanks also to Erica Coppola. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast produced in Birmingham by Adrian Goldberg, that's me, and Harvey White, that's him, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Do take out a subscription if you can. Head over to bylinetimes.com for more details. And if you have already got a subs, thank you very much indeed. This is a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times. We'll see you again very soon, but for now, cheers, thank you, and goodbye.